Thank you all for coming on this cold night. Um, uh, Jamie and I are going to talk for about uh, 25 minutes. So, Jamie, <laughs> um, before we talk about the play itself, you've had really amazing reviews for this. Are you someone who re reads your reviews? No, I don't, I don't <laughs> read them at all. And so do you don't, not even when you know that they're good? No, I can't. And I, partly because I banned the cast from um, reading them. Right. Why so, did you do that? Um, because I think that um, it can, whether they realise it or not, it really can affect their performance. Right. Even, and maybe even especially the good ones. Right. They were always, uh, there are certain critics that always detail uh, a particular line that worked well or a particular approach or yes. something about somebody's performance that worked particularly well. Um, and then that line will never be the same ever again. <laughs> it will be a disaster because they'll have the compliment in their head as yeah. they're playing yeah. it and it just will not work at all. A particular, you know, a line that was particularly funny, for instance. Right. And then, of course, if there are any bad reviews or any uh, reviews about particular performances that um, that particular critic doesn't feel is successful, you know, why on earth would you um, suggest that an actor should read them when they've got to play the part character yes. for another couple of yes. months or whatever, or longer? So I think it's much better not to read them. Right. And it's so hard now because, of course, people are... I think tweeting. All, tweeting. <laughs> Almost all of our cast are on Twitter. Yes. Um, it's quite hard to block it out. Quite hard to block it out. And, of course, you've got free newspapers on the tube and you can be just yeah. flicking through and seeing... I think even knowing that what kind of... The star rating of reviews can affect the performance. Right. So I banned them from the cast. Um, I hope that they've um, taken that on. I know that they certainly haven't um, talked about it amongst themselves, which is always good. So therefore, I feel like I shouldn't read them either. Um, and to be honest, I had the most um, incredible experience working in this building and yes. on this play with this cast yes. that if anyone um, had anything negative to say, I didn't want it to take the yeah, experience until enough. after I'd... I'd we spoke a little bit um, backstage about this, but w w why this play now, do you think? And um, Because, as you say, it's a very well-known play in the sense that everyone knows the title. Yeah. But it's not performed as often as you would expect, really, given what a crowd-pleaser it can be when it mm -hmm. works properly. Mm -hmm. So why, do, why this play now? It, well, it used to be performed alongside all of the great English comedies almost all the time. You'd, there'd be a production of She Stoops to Conquer on somewhere in the country um, at, at all times. Yes. Um, and for some reason, all of these plays, um, the Beau Stratagem and even the plays from the Restoration, which, of course, is an earlier period to this play, uh, and Sheridan's plays, which are slightly later than Goldsmith's by a few years, um, sort of went out of fashion. Nobody um, performed them. And Nick Heitner, when he asked me if I'd like to direct something um, here and specifically for this stage, wanted a great English comedy. Um, and it could, have it could have been from an earlier era and beyond. Um, and I read them. And, and I only read, I think, one or two. Um, bizarrely, for my generation of directors, um, um, we'd never seen them. Uh, the generation above us had always skipped these plays for some reason. Um, they, as I say, they were completely out of fashion, so I had to reread them. I had never read She Stoops to Conquer, partly because I thought it was maybe uh, a play that had been done so much or that people were so familiar with. And then when you realise it really is better known than it is performed, mm. um, you can open it up to a whole new generation of people and uh, reinvest in it for people that love the play. And it's, I mean, it's a tremendously warm. I mean, I said earlier, it, there's no malice in it. It's such a kind-hearted play. Mm. 
Did you, I mean, did you just read it and think, this is the one, I, this is the one I've fallen in love with? I think this one of all of the plays that I read from around the time is definitely the most generous. Yes. Um, it's got such a big heart and um, such an energy to it. One of the things that you have to, I know that they talk about it a lot in this building, is that you have to um, find a play that absolutely will fill this space. It's not a, a, an easy auditorium to fill. The, it needs, there needs to be certain criteria, I think, that, mm. that for the play to match the Olivier stage. Um, and of course, it, you can use the epic, you can use the sweeping, um, and I'm sure many of you have seen the drum revolve being used in really um, exciting ways and the space being used design-wise successfully. Um, but also, it has an incredible warm embrace, this um, theatre. And Sophie Thompson, who's in it, who plays Mrs. Hardcastle, describes the auditorium almost like a ginormous belly, a big fat belly that kind of <laughs> hugs the stage. And it's true. And so you need something that has that will that mm. use that warm embrace. And it feels like there's something a great warmth and a great generosity that comes from the stage from watching this play. Yeah. And it felt like a perfect. On match. the other hand, it's quite domestic. It's quite a yeah. domestic play, isn't yeah. it? So you've had to. Um, I don't want to spoil it if you're going to see it tonight. But I think you've brought certain things to it to kind of make it a bit bigger. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one of those things is that you've put music into it. Mm -hmm. did, how soon in the process did that idea come to you? Because I think that that is one of the magical things about this production, it's the music. I think um, very early on, actually. I mean, I'm a big fan of music. I use music in uh, all of uh, my productions. I use the same um, brilliant composers almost all the time, Ben and Max Ringham, uh, and I like um, musical theatre. I've directed a, a, a few musicals as well, and I love the kind of um, the uh, um, experience of listening to music. Of of, of if if a lyric or a, a, a spoken text will make you think a thought, then the music will allow you to feel a feeling. And and to often put those in tandem, I think, is one of the most exciting things of being in the theatre. Um, it felt like this had the energy almost of a musical comedy. <laughs> and uh, it <laughs> felt in a way to in, you know, enjoy the kind of energy of that. And to really, the, the music that we put in it is only, I think, only 35 seconds yeah. at a time, something like 40 it's seconds at a time. It's kind of incidental music. It's linking it? devices. Yeah. You've got to get from act, there are five acts, you've got to link the acts, you've got to um, be able to uh, change the scene. So rather than have a blackout, and the kind of robbers dressed in black, the stage management come on and nick the furniture. Um, uh, rather than kind of allow the, the action to drop, if you can somehow continue the action narratively, um, then it makes it um, more exciting. So yeah. to do that through song um, made sense to me. Yeah. But also, I, as I was researching the era and researching the play, I realized actually that between what, what would have happened in Goldsmith's time in 1773, what would have happened is that you would have one act and then you'd have some kind of um, interval artist. So you'd have um, some song or some dance mm. or um, there'd be certain, um, uh, yeah, just that they were completely disconnected from, from the narrative. Mm. And in a way, I think that's why it works. It feels like you're kind of keeping yeah. the energy up with something of that. If you are going to sit tonight, the music, I think it's the greatest treat, the music, from the moment it starts. Because I think you sort of also, it gives the audience permission 
to you're saying this is a romp and you're going to enjoy yourself yeah. from from the get-go it's yes. like a signal really yeah yeah <laughs> now the other thing the other decision you have to take when you're doing a play like this is costume mm-hmm. um, I always have a slight nervousness when I'm coming to see a, 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 an old play because I think oh will they be wearing nice big frocks and wigs or yeah. <laughs> will they all be wearing tracksuits mm-hmm. what was your um, feeling about that I mean, it's no surprise probably to anyone that this has got costumes, fabulous costumes and wigs, but what, how, what deci- how soon did you take that decision? Well, it felt absolutely <coughs> right to keep it in the period. I personally think it's a mistake to do these plays outside of the period because they feel very much of their time. Mm. And I, I think one of what I've tried to do most often as a director and hope to continue to do is to get back absolutely to why the writer picked up the pen in the first place or or wrote on the laptop or picked up his quill i guess in the case <laughs> of oliver goldsmith so um <coughs> it feels it feels like that's ultimately i think for me what the role of a director could and maybe should be um as an interpretative art or interpretative or interpretative artist instead of someone who who writes and creates of their own work um, so it felt like it, and yeah. in a way, by putting something in the period, and it's the same thing that I'm just about to do with Duchess of Malfi at the Old Vic, keeping that in the period as well, you allow the audience to draw parallels themselves. So rather than say, just say, this is, this is it, look, isn't this amazing? This play is as fresh as it, yeah. as it was in yeah. 1773. This is about us as much as it, it, it was about them. Um, I think it's more fun for the audience to go, God, isn't that funny? I've had that conversation yes. last <laughs> week, or you know, that's, absolute, that's my concern. I'm thinking about yeah. um, money and love and, mm. and courtship. And um, this play absolutely is about England now. This is England. This is about, I think, the satire on the English class system in this yes. play is as relevant as, as, it, as it was um, then. And the tension between London and the rest of Britain. It's a, it's a play of opposites, town and country and male and female and old and young mm. and um, impudence versus mm. modesty. Um, those things are all explored. You don't mm. need to be so heavy-handed no. and to say, let's no. set it in a, in a country I mean, pub. Mrs. Hardcastle mm. is just a woman with a telephone voice, what we would call a telephone yes. voice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, and yeah. She's, we've seen her in every sitcom from when we were children, exactly. really. So yes. the fact that she's wearing a, a big frock really doesn't make that much difference. Yeah, and she say, she has the very, she's very human. She has the same human foibles and pretensions. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it's very interesting that essentially she's a member of the middle classes, aspiring to be yes. um, great than herself and looking slightly ridiculous in in the in the um, process <laughs> of doing that now it's a very um it, it's like a sort of machine this play it has to be extremely well oiled doesn't it timing is absolutely everything and it's yeah. very intricate uh even though it is so crowd pleasing i i wonder about the demands that makes on on you when you're rehearsing i i never understand why people think comedy is easy because it seems to me it's much harder to get all that right i think it's much harder than doing a tragedy yeah it really is the technical look all theater i think if you're going to do it properly is is i think has great technical skill yes. in particular if you are playing a house like this the craft of uh, of acting on this stage mm. is is huge um but the language is so important, and I, I really hope that um, everybody will be able to hear every single syllable, every single sound. Um, his, it's not in verse, but it is a kind of slightly archaic form of expression, and it is a heightened form of expression. Yes. 
and people are uh, often um, talking in riddles and rhymes and... It's quite rhythmic. Yes, it really is. It's got its own rhythm, so you have to find that. Um, and I think one of the reasons why you can now do these plays and this play now is that there's a whole raft of brilliant young actors who are highly accomplished and, and not afraid of um, the text and the relish mm. of each word and each sound. And it's, it, it, it wasn't very fashionable, even you know, a few years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago maybe, where, um, where actors, I think, to be real, to be truthful, young actors in particular, um, because of the demands of the plays that were mm. on and the, and the television series that they were in, were kind of, um, felt that truth was a kind of mumbly kind of naturalism that was kind of like a sort of undercut and you couldn't really understand what they were saying and that kind of felt very true. Um, that kind of extreme realism, which of course is amazing. There are some gifted actors out there who can do it brilliantly. But what you need for this, if you turned this into a fourth wall play, pretended that the audience wasn't there and just absolutely played this kind of truth <laughs> that was kind of mumbly and inaccessible, it, it would not work no. at all. The truth happens in this play when you share it with the audience. And that is, again, if we're going back to what um, Oliver Goldsmith wanted when he was writing the play, he considered the modes of the time where the lights would be up in the auditorium, That's right, yeah. where the audience would absolutely yeah. be a part yeah. of the entire event, where... Um, knowing looks. And knowing looks and improvisations. And, yeah. I mean, oftentimes the uh, audience would be like trying to clamber up onto the stage <laughs> and, and they'd have to kind of push them off or kind of take them out of the wings. So they were absolutely active in it. Mm. Um, so you've kind of got to embrace that. So in rehearsal, if ever someone was trying to pretend that the audience were, were, wasn't there, the, the play just didn't come alive. The minute you take it out and, and share it, you know, it's a shared experience with this kind of amazing auditorium, somehow it lives. Mm. And I think that's particularly the case in this, in this uh, theatre. You can't, uh, it, it's a really odd, it's almost, um, uh, it's like, yeah, it's an old fashioned way of acting. Um, you've got to be technically skilled. Yes. You have to start a thought yeah. on with your, your fellow actor, and then take <laughs> it out to the audience, and then complete it. Yes. And um, of course, if you know if you're working like I have at the Donmar and other places, mm. that style is going to feel slightly redundant. But here, it's a it's a must, particularly with this play. Now you've got the most amazing bunch of actors in there. Yeah, incredible. Um, it, it feels a bit unfair to begin with Catherine Kelly, but I feel we have to really because she has come from Coronation Street. Mm -hmm. So now, when you're directing a, a, group, a big ensemble like this, obviously everyone's got to be taking their place in it. Um, but you've got someone like that who everyone knows from the telly. And on, on the one hand, that hopefully encourages people maybe to come and see the play, a certain people mm -hmm. who might have otherwise thought, well, I don't fancy that. Yeah. On the other hand, you don't want it to sort of distort things, do you? I mean, can you just t tell us a little bit about that? It's absolutely an ensemble piece, um, and uh, I think each actor is very well known because of the work that they've done. You know, not you know, not all of them are household names, mm -hmm. but certainly there are a couple of um, young theatre actors who are very well respected from their recent theatre projects. Um, Catherine, and I say this because she knows I've told her, I've never seen an episode of Coronation Street. <laughs> um, Shame so on you. I know. I've, I've never seen it. So I didn't know really her work at all. Um, and she came in to read for the part, um, and I loved her, and I loved what she did in the, with the role of Kate Hardcastle and offered her the role. 
Um, and, and everybody um, did the same thing. You know, they all uh, you know, felt that they w were absolutely serving the play and not their own ego or their own agenda. And, and, and Kate Kelly is an amazing team player. She's an incredible um, woman and amazingly gener generous. Not a diva or a star or in any way. You, you wouldn't know that she was, you know, she walks out the street and gets accosted because she's in people's television room, in, a, in people's living rooms uh, every night or, or was. Um, so, no, I think it's vital for everything. Um, all of the productions that, that I've done um, try to create an ensemble spirit, mm. um, regardless of who's in it. Now, there, there is. I, I sort of feel loath to single out any performances because there, there, there's no weak link in this play, but there's one very big performance which we've already touched on, which is Sophie Thompson as Mrs. Hardcastle, who's very, what we would call, aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wondered how much of that had come from... I mean, she has this marvellous telephone voice. How much of that came from Sophie and how much came from you? I think it was a real... Um, collaboration she brought so much they all did every single person in this cast um, is exceptional I think um, they are they're, they're 18 of the finest people that I've ever worked with and they were so generous they brought so much they worked their socks off we have got I think the finest ensemble um, of actors um, that I've ever worked with um, and I say ensemble, not just the ensemble of, of actors who uh, take the role of the servants and um, people in the inn, in the country, and sing. They are, my goodness, they are the, uh, the most incredible group of people you could ever hope to meet. Um, but the whole ensemble as a whole uh, worked so hard and brought so much to the table and invested in it so much. Worked, brought Each time we did a scene, they would go away, think about it, bring something new. And I hope that they felt that it was an environment in which they could try things out. Mm. And Sophie is, <laughs> has got balls of steel. She's incredible. <laughs> She's able to really you know, embrace the text and the space and fill it in, in its entirety. But also, likewise, she's very happy to be reined in and to mm. be, she's incredible. If you look at that performance, it's masterful in its discipline. Yeah. It's not just a big, you know, no, no, full of energy. Right. It's precise and it's very detailed. Very physical. Very physical and she nails absolutely mm. every thought and tells the story. It's not an egoic performance. It's not a performance. It's about serving the play and she gets inside, um, Mrs. Harcastle's pretensions and then some. So, um, just just to pick at the rehearsal process. I mean, is it, it? It must be incredibly tiring to do this. This play every day, little bits of it, working away at these. And and I wonder, um, you know, jokes. We we think of jokes as spontaneous. Yeah. And and the the trick of what you do is to make something is to rehearse something, but for yes. it to be funny at the end of that, That's which right. I think is quite a, a yeah. hard thing to pull off. Can you yeah. just talk a little bit about you know, the business of making comedy? Well, I think, the, well, as I was kind of touching on there, it's the freedom, really, mm. and giving the, uh, this sort of it, uh, experience of playing in the rehearsal room is the, is the finest thing you can mm. do, but also trusting the text. There are, um, we've got a, 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 the occasional... Um, uh, sight gag or, or moment that's off the text, but actually 99% of what you see in the production is from Oliver Goldsmith. Mm. And much of the comedy um, comes from either the cast's playfulness or lightness of touch or flair um, and precision comic timing, but also the audience are also laughing at the narrative. And it was <coughs> the best bit about being a director um, is the first preview. 
where you are learning so much from the audience that it sees it for the first time. Um, and I was amazed as to how many laughs um, the, the play was getting that I had no idea would get. And it's because people are following the ins and outs of this yeah, you know, yeah. quite complicated narrative. Yes. And when the payoffs happen or the twists and turns happen or the mistakes of the night happen, yes. people are, are well, belly laughing. And that's Oliver Goldsmith. Yeah, no, because I know because the story is, nobody really knows if it's true, but the story is that this happened to him in, in real life when he was a boy, that he was sent to someone's, he, he asked for an inn and he was sent to a house, which is what all the action turns on. And so no matter how preposterous it gets, it seems always to me to be un, un, underpinned by something that could happen. And that's what's so brilliant about it, that you always believe in the chaos of it. And also Oliver Goldsmith um, absolutely um, covers all bases. Yes. So, yeah, so when Marlowe, who is this posh young man, <laughs> um, comes from London, and, and thinks this house is an inn. He even comes in and says, ah, oh, it's the fate of an old mansion. You know, it's clearly cost a lot to run. And so <laughs> the master of the house has now had to, has fallen on hard times and turned it into an inn. So it's not like he's saying it's, you know, absolutely a country inn. <laughs> it's an old mansion. So it, he, he, he gets away with it, I think, does Oliver Goldsmith, by, by putting those little, um, you know, disclaimers in, I guess. Yes, now we must, in a minute we must wind up, but we're just finished. You, you're, you're working on the Duchess of Malfi now. You've gone, it seems to me, from the, in theatre, the most, I mean, you've gone from, from the joy of this to the bloodiness of the Duchess of Malfi. What's that like? To, t to turn, I mean, <laughs> to turn your mind from one to t'other. It is the weirdest experience, <laughs> I have to say, because you couldn't get more dark or more peculiar yeah. um, than, than John Webster's <laughs> Duchess of Malfi. And even though I've just been rehearsing for four days, it is, my goodness, it is, it's, it's a challenge, that play. Um, but <laughs> then, do you know what they both have? I think that Webster is basically um, analyzing human goodness in the role of the Duchess, saying that there's this great, good um, woman of integrity and virtue who is able to um, deal with, you know, a world of much depravity and darkness and anger with grace and uh, enlightenment. And in a way, Goldsmith is also saying there's a lot of um, goodness in human beings, um, you know, despite, you know, our mishaps and our, our confusions and our neuroses, um, you know, there's a, there's a great yeah. deal of warmth to be we shared between along. each other. We can yeah. get along. And I think they're both saying that ultimately. Well, I, we're going to have to stop because, um, you know, the going to be on and soon yeah, so um, thank you so much and thank you Jamie and have a great time tonight if you're going to do the play thank you very much